0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at Fidelity.com/slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services Member NYSC S I P C
1: From the Newsroom of the Washington
0: Post. It's Robert Samuels from the Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Halahi Azadi with the Washington Post. Hey,
1: this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 13th. Today, takeaways from round three of the Democratic debates and Baltimore's ongoing challenge to reinvent itself.
2: The stage is set. The field has been narrowed for one night only. The top 10 candidates are here. Our Democratic primary debate starts right now.
3: Look, I don't think that this was necessarily a resounding performance by all 10 people on stage by any means.
1: Aaron Blake is a senior reporter for the post-politics blog, The Fix.
3: I do think it was an improvement upon what we've seen in the first two debates.
1: And he was watching Thursday night's Democratic primary debate, which aired on ABC.
2: Oh, okay, Senator Sanders. Minute, George, Go ahead. You know why they're going bankrupt? Because they suffered a terrible disease. Houston, we have a problem. We know Donald Trump's a racist, but there is no red bag of courage for calling him that. It was
3: a smaller field of candidates. This was the cream of the crop, the 10 people who qualified. We didn't have the kind of one percenter candidates who were throwing bombs trying to get people to pay attention to them. It was more of a substantive debate. The second thing is I think that Joe Biden probably cleared the low bar that he set for himself in previous debates. He did a little bit better. And we didn't really see any candidates have really awful moments like we have seen in some of these debates. And so I think if you're the Democratic Party and you're worried about how your opponent to President Trump might shape up in the general election debates, this was a step in the right direction.
1: So, obviously, this was a debate where we had a lot of eyes on former Vice President Joe Biden, on Senator Sanders, on Senator Warren. And one of the issues where a lot of the differences came out was in discussions about health care. What were those conversations like and what were the moments that stuck out to you about how they were thinking about and debating over health care?
3: Well, this has been the most popular topic at pretty much every debate that we've had. I thought what was interesting on Thursday night is that we saw more of kind of a united pushback on the idea of Medicare for all, and more specifically, when it comes to getting rid of private insurance altogether, which is something that, of course, Senator Bernie Sanders supports and Elizabeth Warren supports.
2: The, the problem, Senator Sanders, with that damn bill that you wrote, and that Senator Warren backs, is that it doesn't trust the American
3: people. We saw Pete Buttigieg make a pretty impassioned case that, you know, basically, if we want people to do the public option. Let's offer them both.
2: I propose Medicare for all who want it. We take
3: a And then have people migrate to, to that public option bill if bill it's going the to the be so good. People. And if we're right as progressives that that public alternative is better then the American people will figure that out for themselves. Uh, Amy Klobuchar was making that argument. I thought Joe Biden made better arguments against that and in defense of Obamacare and kind of his more incremental approach.
2: I know that the senator says she's for Bernie. Well, I'm for Barack I think the Obamacare worked. I think the way we, to, we add to it, replace everything that's been cut, add a public option, guarantee that everyone will be able to have affordable assurance, number one.
3: It was maybe a little bit of a course correction for a Democratic Party, or at least the part of the party that is wary of looking like they're going after pie in the sky, a $30 trillion overhaul of the American health care system. And so I think that debate is shifting ever so slightly in a more pragmatic direction.
1: Though, of course, some of the conversation about that question of Medicare for all or not Medicare for all and who's on which side got confused when Julian Castro jumped
2: in. Barack Obama's vision was not to leave 10 million people uncovered. He wanted every single person in this country covered. My plan would do that. Your plan would not. They do not have to buy
1: in. How did you kind of see that? moment? Well, I
3: think everybody watched that moment and they thought this is the second big moment that we've had in these debates. The first was Kamala Harris going after Joe Biden on busing. And in this case, we looked back after that whole exchange went down and, and, you know, the, the initial reaction was, oh, Julian Castro is spotlighting that Joe Biden is old and maybe not very sharp.
2: They do not have to buy in. You just said that. You just said that two minutes ago. You just said two minutes ago that they, would, they, have they would have to buy in. You said they would have to buy in. Uh, if she Are, for you, are you forgetting she what you said two minutes ago? Are you forgetting already what you said just two minutes ago?
3: It was difficult not to attach that to the age issue, which, of course, is hovering over Joe Biden throughout this entire campaign. But we looked back and actually Joe Biden in his answer had not said that people would have to Opt into his program. He said specifically,
2: anyone who can't afford it gets automatically enrolled in the in, in, in the Medicare-type option we have. Is-
3: it would automatically enroll people in the program. You know, it's one thing to get these moments optically right, which Julian Castro probably did in this instance, but the substance of his attack was just not on point, and he picked the wrong moment to try and land this punch.
1: And I don't even know if optically it really worked, because I think when we get to this stage in the campaign and candidates are trying to come at each other more forcefully, at least in in Julian Castro's case, it reminds me of like in middle school when people decided (laughs) that they needed to start being mean to each other. But some people are just bad at being mean. And I feel like Julian Castro is someone for whom it doesn't come off as a good look for him when he is really trying to hammer into Joe Biden and basically calling him old.
3: This is always the risk when you're at 1% or 2% in the polls. You need to try something. And, you know, when you try hard, when you really go after somebody, the downside of that is sometimes you're not going to have your facts down. It's not going to go like you hoped. A lot of the zingers on Thursday night didn't exactly land like maybe the candidates had hoped.
2: Now, look, I'm the only person on the stage that finds Trudeau's hair
3: very
1: menacing.
4: Donald Trump. In office, on trade policy, you know, he reminds me of that that guy in The Wizard of Oz, you know, when you pull back the curtain, it's a really
0: small dude.
3: And so, you know, that kind of desperation can sometimes look like exactly what it is, which is desperation to have an impact that maybe you don't wind up having the impact that you wanted.
1: I want to talk about one other moment having to do with Joe Biden when he was asked about the legacy of slavery and his answer to that. I think, struck people um, in a lot of different ways. Can you describe what he was saying?
3: Yeah, so basically, Joe Biden was confronted with an answer that he gave in 1975 about this issue where he said, I don't feel responsible for the sins of my father and grandfather. I feel responsible for what our situation is today, for the sins of my own generation, and I'll be damned if I feel responsible to pay for what happened 300 years ago.
0: You said that some 40 years ago. But as you stand here tonight, what responsibility do you think that Americans need to take to repair the legacy of slavery in our country?
2: Well, they have to deal with the, the look, there is institutional segregation in this country.
3: In his answer, after kind of talking around it for a while, Joe Biden eventually kind of went back to the idea, and this is something he's talked about before, that there is a, a role and a failure, perhaps, of parents in dealing with certain issues with their children. He said, we bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't know quite what to do.
2: We bring social workers into homes and parents to help them deal with how to raise their children. It's not that they don't want to help. They don't, want, they don't know quite what to do play the radio make they
3: sure play the radio make sure the television
2: you have the record player on at night make sure you have a good
3: record player on at night
2: make sure the kids hear words a kid coming from a very poor school a very poor background will hear 4 million words fewer spoken by the time they get there which like what
3: yeah the record player you know obviously we're getting back into the age thing but i think there are certain people who feel that this answer was somewhat racialized that he was kind of casting aspersions on uh, an entire race of people.
1: Well, because it does two things, right? Like he often draws this this equivalence between being black and being poor, just uses those terms interchangeably as he did here. And then you have this—you know—he's being asked about the legacy of, of slavery and about his views on that, and then he immediately turns it to sort of blaming black people for their failure to parent properly.
3: Yeah, it's—it was a—it was definitely a. Um, an uneasy segue into something that maybe he probably didn't want to talk about. But this is also part of what Joe Biden is. Joe Biden does meander. He talks a lot and sometimes he says things that get him in trouble. And in this case, I think he reverted to a talking point that was a little bit dated and also didn't really have to do with the question that he was being asked.
1: I thought there were a few interesting moments from the debate where you found candidates feeling more confident in taking Quite left positions, even when compared to like the first debate, and specifically that came up when former Congressman Beto O'Rourke was being asked about gun control, gun reform, and specifically whether he would take away people's AK-47s. And he said, "Oh yes. yes, we're going to take
2: your AR-15, your AK-47.
0: We're not going to allow it to be used against
2: our fellow Americans anymore."
1: How did that moment strike you? Uh, We
3: talked before about desperate candidates or candidates who are low in the polls tend to do things to try things to get register with people. This was definitely one of those moments. Beto O'Rourke has been talking about this for a couple of weeks ever since the tragedy in El Paso. But this is the kind of position that the Democratic Party has been trying to avoid like the plague for years and years, even as they have moved left on, on gun control, talking about assault weapons bans. The idea of mandatory buybacks of any guns, whether they be assault weapons or anything else, is not what they talk about when Republicans accuse them of saying, you know, we're going to take your guns away, Democrats always say, no, that's not what we're doing. Well, that's what Beto O'Rourke said that he wanted to do on Thursday night. So uh, I think the question for Democrats is, are they going to move in that direction because he's now set up that position on the left flank? And at least one candidate who was asked specifically about that proposal, Amy Klobuchar, decided not to go there. She said she did not support that kind of proposal. I would be kind of surprised if the rest of the Democratic Party goes in that direction.
1: I also just want to talk about a candidate that we haven't talked about a lot yet. Elizabeth Warren, who is, you know, one of a one of the top three leading candidates in the polls, but seemed to kind of fly under the radar during this debate. She had a lot of smart answers for things that she was asked. But considering the fact that a lot of people were hyping up that this would be the first time that Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren would be together on stage, they didn't really come at each other a lot. And nobody really came after Elizabeth Warren. And I'm wondering if that's a good thing or is it a bad thing?
3: You know, I think that given she has shown demonstrated and sustained momentum in this race. She's the one candidate who has kind of been steadily rising in the polls throughout. I think fading to the background a little bit is probably okay for her. There is this interesting thing about her, though, which is that she, for some reason, is very difficult to attack, and nobody seems to know what to do with it. So, you know, she's already pretty much tied for second place with Bernie Sanders in most of these polls. She's taking a lead even in some of the the early states, according to the polls that we've seen in New Hampshire. And she's so studied in all of her policy proposals. I think it's a really difficult thing for the other candidates to contend with. She's almost the Teflon woman of this debate primary stage so far.
1: So this was the third Democratic debate, even though it's sort of almost like the fifth, because the first two rounds actually had two debates. And then we're going to have another one in October, potentially— That one will be split up into two separate debates if more candidates qualify. It just seems like a lot of these candidates are getting a lot of exposure on the debate stage. And is that working? Like, do you feel like people are getting the answers that they need to know who they're going to be voting for? Or is it creating more confusion?
3: I think that if we are at the end of the Democratic primary process and we look back on the debates, I'm not sure that this is one that we're necessarily going to remember a whole lot. Polls show that enthusiasm for the 2020 election is higher than it's ever been before even higher than it generally is on the eve of the election, which I think is remarkable. But I don't think that we necessarily see that reflected in people tuning in at this point. I don't think we necessarily see it in fluctuations in the polls, which have been pretty steady, generally speaking. There have been kind of slight shifts and a couple jumps like Kamala Harris after the first debate. But, you know, this is a long slog. There are going to be lots of debates. There are going to be many candidate forums and things like that. And I think a lot of people are are not fully tuned in until we actually start getting towards the votes. And the debates are certainly a good place to take stock of where the candidates are and how sharp they are and whether they've got their stuff down for people who really care about these things like donors and, and more passionate supporters. But it's really part of a process, and we're still
1: very early in that process. Aaron Blake is a senior political reporter for The Fix.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.
4: You know, I've been writing about Maryland for 12 years, and Baltimore is one of the most fascinating and complex and heartbreaking places you could ever encounter.
1: President Trump was in Baltimore on Thursday, which was awkward because earlier this summer he was tweeting that the city of Baltimore was rat infested and filthy and someplace where no human being would want to live. And those things were painful for Baltimore residents to hear because they have faced so many challenges since 2015 when a man named Freddie Gray died while in the custody of police.
4: Freddie Gray's death happened, and then there was this rush to help. And that's not the end of the story, right? The landscape keeps shifting underneath your feet. So what happened? Erin
1: Cox covers Maryland politics for The Post. She's been reporting on how, even now, after tens of millions of dollars poured into Baltimore, the city is still struggling to heal from these wounds laid bare by Freddie Gray.
4: So Freddie Gray was a 25-year-old young man from West Baltimore. And he grew up in one of the impoverished areas. And he was one of many, many Black people in Baltimore subject to questionable police practices. So he was out in one of the housing projects in Baltimore, made eye contact with police, started sprinting away. Police ran after him, arrested him. And, you know, neighbors started videotaping.
2: Look at Leg. That boy leg looked broke! Oh His leg broke and dragging
4: him like that. He ultimately he was put in the back of a van, and by the time they opened the van up, he had had a neck injury, which he he later died. There was weeks of peaceful protests, and there was all of this built-up antipathy about how police in Baltimore had treated the black community, and it erupted on the day of Freddie Gray's funeral. The peaceful protests turned into looting and riots and arson and, you know, the the National Guard rolled in with tanks and um, took over the city for a week.
2: We're frustrated, okay? We're tired, okay? We have boarded up houses for blocks and blocks and blocks. The politicians really don't give a damn about us, for real. What I think the people of Baltimore want more than anything else is the truth.
4: So if there's anything that could be considered a silver lining here, it was that it was an impetus for change, that it reverberated up to the Obama White House. Congressmen, senators were all having these both public and private meetings saying, we've got to fix this.
0: See that justice can and and, and will be done. We'll let, let that process work. Every one of us as we've watched Baltimore be torn apart,
4: our
2: hearts break. All of us who love Baltimore are deeply saddened by the death of Freddie Gray. I hope that we can move forward to a productive peace.
4: And not just the relationship with police, but kind of the inequity that this situation laid bare, the inequity in education and health disparities in everything that kind of was suppressing black people in Baltimore and kind of trapping them in generational poverty the way that Freddie Gray had been trapped in generational poverty. And so there was this rush of people at every level of government and community deciding they were going to help finally address the systemic issues of poverty and racism.
1: And that kind of coalesced in this organization called One Baltimore. What was that?
4: That was Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake's effort to kind of coordinate all of that goodwill in one place. And so they picked this local business consultant, a guy who who is from Baltimore, grew up Baltimore, had a lot of credibility, and he was put in charge of kind of creating a long-term plan. Who was that person? His name is Michael Cryer.
2: My dream is that we reach a point where race and class, uh, where the, the kinds of inequity and inequality that we've experienced for so many years— Uh, no longer defines what we are.
4: Michael Cryer, like a lot of people I talked to in Baltimore, saw this as a moment where everybody's attention was focused in the same place, to go in a single direction. And where was all this money coming from? It came from all over the place. Places like Johns Hopkins, the United Way, private people, I think at some point Jay-Z donated money. The federal government was steering grant money that was discretionary into summer jobs programs. Prince came to Baltimore and had this concert for hope. And he declared, you know, one Baltimore would be a beneficiary of, uh, of his concert. Ultimately, the money never materialized. You know, one Baltimore says they called and they asked and they asked, other groups who were also designated money received it. But it was kind of an example of the way there were these vague promises that weren't in writing that kind of never coalesced where One Baltimore had hope and promise and not any of the, like, results.
1: So people were making promises that this money was going
4: to change people's lives, and how did that end up panning out? I mean, when you make an impossible promise, they tend to be impossible to keep. Oh,
2: good. Yep. Yeah. So well, I understand. Yeah, so
4: oh, real I, please.
2: Yeah.
4: I just uh, this is for the Yeah. So one woman I spoke to was Erica Buck Alston.
2: And, hey, y'all. hey, hey.
4: On the day of Freddie Gray's funeral, she was in this uh, rehab center on uh, community center where his family was, you know, holding the, the repast after his funeral. And she saw a vacant laundromat and all of these kids outside because school had been canceled, the National Guard was in the streets, and she decided she was going to create an after-school where program.
1: I, the first day we opened and we did an hour walk and came back with 45 kids. They were all outside sitting on the stoop playing in the middle of the street, they had nowhere to go. The next day it was 60, then it was
0: 85, and it was over
4: 100 kids every day. And largely through sheer force of will and charisma, she did it. And she, you know, got, got access to this laundromat, and it became this kind of donation fueled oasis it was made of everything.
1: So, it was although this space was right here, it was easier for them to send their kids to someone they trusted. And when I'm told they don't have food in the house, it's not a report. It's tell your mom to come outside and take the groceries. You know?
4: And she got featured on the news, and the money started rolling in, and they had brightly painted walls and TVs and suburban soccer moms with minivans dropping off stuff.
1: Baltimore doesn't need to be saved or have a white savior, and that's what it feels like. So, So let us tell you what brown kids need to succeed.
4: And... It was never enough that, like, it just once the media attention faded, you know, it kind of, the children's center faded. Where do you think all your kids go, all your kids went? On the street. Really? Yeah. In between yellow crime tape and teddy bear shrines. Yeah.
1: Do you feel like at least there was a sense that lessons had been learned to build things that would be sustainable, that that has made people think more about how to create institutions that have more staying power?
4: I wish I had a different answer to that question. But, you know, when we talk about lessons learned, it it kind of implies that there's someone who has been sitting, watching, trying to steer the ship in a single direction when kind of the nature of Baltimore— As neighborhoods, they're very disparate and they're very disjointed. And basically, people very quickly went back to what they were doing, which is focusing on the small things they can do in front of them and largely kind of abandoned this big coordinated effort. Michael Cryer, who ran One Baltimore, quietly just kind of shut it down and turned out the lights. And when I asked him why he did that, he said that the city didn't need another statement of failure. Have you encountered any examples of things that have worked? Right. So this is one of the most uplifting parts about this reporting is that on a macro level, where you might not have seen much success, on a micro level, you can go into lots of these different neighborhoods and see smaller examples of success. And the one that I found was a boxing gym in West Baltimore. And it's run by a guy named Umar Marvin McDowell. First of all, no hooks
2: before books. Put the guns down, put the gloves up.
4: And he's been there for 20 years. What what I've been tasked to write about is kind of how people in the community feel four years after the Freddie Gray uprising, whether they thought things were gonna change for the better or the worse. Uh,
2: No, there were a lot of uh, pop-up organizations that were out here getting the money that was funded in this area, you know? And we didn't get any of it.
4: The mental discipline Uh, that goes into learning how to box and to to focus and set your emotions aside are all skills that that he says kind of translate to helping some of these children that come from very traumatic backgrounds learn how to navigate their worlds. What gives you hope?
2: What gives me hope? when I keep these doors open and these kids come in, that means when they come through those doors, that they want help, that they're looking for help, that they want to change.
4: When it takes a century of inequity to create a problem, the solution is not going to be something that's driven by a new cycle or a single event. There's not going to be a sort of storybook fix. But, you know, when Baltimore's renaissance comes, it's going to be amazing. And I'm eager to see who could be the leader that could put that all together. Aaron, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure.
1: Aaron Cox covers Maryland politics for the Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Sprenowski, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.
0: what's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.